One, two, check. And I'm going to see if the screen comes up. It takes a while. Here we go. It's not Rumble. It's me. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of Rumble, but it's also me. Let's see if that works. I'm going to see if this works. Let's see. Let's see. All right. All right. It's on. Okay. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. All right. Um, I guess the platform that I was trying to use, I'm fine tuning it and I'm trying to figure out the VPN so that I don't get like turned off directly. Um, So I apologize for that. I thought I could give it a shot, you know, so that I can get this out on um, Telegram as well. Didn't work. We have a lot to talk about today, but my time is actually limited because I'm going to have to hop off before two. As you all know, I have a hearing tomorrow with the Ohio GOP who um, is protesting uh, the fact that I was certified on the ballot. Uh, It was done in a very, non I would say, non-traditional way in the sense that they wanted to, I don't know, uh, cost me money. Uh, Their uh, claims are uh, unbased. They imagine they went through all those signatures and they pulled up ones that didn't really matter. They were being extremely tedious to things that case law has shown um, does not stand because that is how desperate they are. Their concern is the, you know, the funneling of votes. This is all posturing. We all know that the machines are rigged, so there's no way. But the concerns that they have is, People that will vote for me, uh, you know, will indeed say it so because the one thing that my campaign will do is ask people to validate the fact that they voted, not because I want identity. I'm setting this up where it's a completely anonymous way where people will submit uh, their thumbs up. Um, in a very specific manner. I hope I can get this deployed on time, though. It's really, really hard uh, to kind of beat them at their own game. If we can't get rid of the machines, I'm going to prove that they're rigged. But, I mean, we are going to get rid of them. That's the thing. No matter how hard they try, right? Elections are the people's. And this is our elections, not theirs. Not that your secretary of state's, not your governor's, not DHS's, not your mom. Well, it is your mom's. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's not their elections. They're ours. And for anyone trying to take it away from us, you know, under the guise of, oh, we need to be really secure. So we're just not sharing information. Just trust us. No, we're not. We know how that we've seen this movie before. It's not happening. It's really not happening, especially when you have clowns like this that have hired all the people that are running the election. Like, why would we trust you again? Huh? I'm sorry. Now, I thought it would be important that we talk about a couple things. One thing is called camouflage and the other one is called what's a traitor? What are the characteristics of a traitor? And I want you to understand that a traitor is a person that betrays another or, you know, or a group of others when their loyalty is needed the most. Now, one would say, oh, you want them to kiss the ring? No, loyalty meaning to stand together in something. So when a friend, for example, stays silent when you need them, right? They're a traitor. 
When you're on the street and you see someone being raped and you're standing silently, you're a traitor to humanity. When you see crimes being committed and you're watching them and you're standing by, you're a traitor to humanity or to whatever, you know, oath or whatever you're supposed to have been keeping to make sure that doesn't happen. There are a barrage amount of traitors, but it all comes down to the same thing. A traitor fulfills their own selfish needs and desires and puts the needs and desires of their nation to the side because it's self-preservation in, in essence. So for me, traitors are low lives, morally corrupt, and they only exist at a selfish level. You know, it's like their souls are dead. You know, it doesn't matter how smart, how educated, how important, or, or how, I mean, it's perceived that it's important a person is, right? A traitor can be extremely intelligent, uh, can say all the right things. I fight on principle. I am, you know, in the army. I am in the Navy. I am in the Air Force. I am a Marine. And therefore, I, I you know, rah, rah. Mm, I do this. I do that. It's, it's a big fat I, right? But the problem all comes down to the general population having a lack of knowledge of history and throughout history, how even respectable people are actually traitors. Now, no one has ever used the word, oh, well, I guess traitors do. <laughs> they identify traitors as great people. But traitors are never like a bonafide traitor, like, uh, I don't know, Benedict Arnold. You know, England calls him a great person. He has some monument in England for it, you know, because obviously he served the crown. But in America, Benedict Arnold is something you don't want to be called, right? Because we all know what that is. Now, what makes people a traitor, right, is, you know, something that f- has, a, I would say, a, a vast array of what it, of what it may mean, right? Um, but to understand that better, you have to understand what makes a traitor tick, Right. In the United States, we know that if a court of law charges you with treason, well, um, finds you guilty of treason, not charges you, because you could charge everyone for anything they want, right? The prosecutor can say, you're charged with indecent exposure, and, you know, you turn up and you're like, look, I was just wearing fishnets. Um, you know, it's not defined as indecent exposure, so then the charges, I'm just, I'm pointing out, you know, Jill Biden's fishnet outfit. You remember that outfit? It just, it just popped into my mind, so I thought it would be a perfect example. But again, you know, espionage, traitors, and, and espionage, let's use this the right way. There's espionage that is conducted um, for the purpose of supporting your nation, and then espionage that's conducted by someone within their nation to support other nations, right? So usually a traitor is someone that fought against its own country in some way, like, I don't know, giving away classified information to an enemy or serving in the armed forces of another country um, at war with your country, right? So like, let's pretend you go to Ukraine and fight on the Ukrainian army, but 
okay, Ukraine isn't at war technically with the United States, but whatever, uh, you know, or committed other acts of, of violence or gave aid or comfort to the enemy. So now, 24th of August, 2022, the word enemy of the state, and I think I wrote an article about that. It was actually titled enemy of the state, but enemy of the state today defined by the people has a completely different definition than the enemy of the state last year, the year before that, five years. Because, you know, you have to think, who identifies the enemy of the state? Is it the uh, unelected fourth branch of government? Is it your military? Is it your president? Or is it the people of the United States? And so it's important for us to think and 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 understand how that is you know we have traitors uh you know against nations against people against companies right when they share trade secrets to others uh, being a trader is 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 interesting in in the uk the biggest trader was guy fox right um he was actually caught in the act of trying to you know blow up Westminster Palace. He was tortured and scheduled to be executed, but he fell and he broke his neck himself. There were more co-conspirators, but, you know, they weren't really mentioned. He was. I mean, wait, so you mean he died before they executed him after they tortured him? Hmm. That's interesting. In India, one of their biggest um, traitors is a clan called the Skindia clan. Right. Uh, and even during the Vietnam War, who was the traitor? Was it the, you know, the people that defected, the ones that served? Like, which ones? Like, who is it? So the word traitor can be thrown around a lot. But in essence, Judas Iscariot is known in history to be one of the most important, and it comes down to the same thing. 30 pieces of silver per se, but it was money. It was self-preservation. It was enriching themselves and their desires. It all comes down to that symbolically. And he felt bad. He kissed the person he was going to betray. He broke bread, cried, discussed, assisted, probably, uh, you know, shared secrets amongst each other with pure, unfettered compassion and love. And yet he still betrayed him. And because he betrayed him, he felt so bad. Probably, you know, a lot of people miss this. Do you think Judas fell bad on his own and went in a corner and dropped the 30 pieces of silver and then hung himself? Let's think about it right now. Say someone today, say I was to go and betray someone and I was given 30 pieces of silver, right? I just got the silver and I went. Would I then go to a tree and hang myself and throw the 30 pieces of silver at my feet? No, he was killed after that. So you have to ask yourself who organized that. See, this is, this is the thing. We think that in the times of yore, they were completely different to the times of today. They are almost the same. See, 
a playbook is a playbook. It's a core strategy. It is has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you take that and you see the similes uh, throughout time that have repeatedly occurred, you will see just how evil doesn't really change their stance. So a traitor, 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 is defined as a person who betrays another, a cause, or any trust a person who just betrays a cause, a person that commits treason is a traitor, you know, but trait. What does the word trait mean? Trait. Just trait. Trait is a distinguishing quality or characteristic. So the word trait or means a distinguishing quality or characteristic typically belonging to some person or. So let's pause on that. Let's pause on that and watch this pretty awesome clip. What makes traders tick? And when we talk traders, we're talking people that assist in obfuscation, assist in confusion, assist in, uh, you know, supporting whatever causes they have that don't align uh, with uh the general causes that many might say traitors. So let's get into this discussion. This is a psychiatrist that specializes in the mind of a spy. Now we're going to take that extreme because you have to understand that people that work as spies, right, are really fucked up in the head. They have to learn to compartmentalize everything. They have to sequester their feelings in boxes or else they overlap. And if they're not good at that, that's it. It's it's game over. They're nuts. Uh, Most of them just lose their mind completely. So you have to be able to compartmentalize and remember who you are because in the process of enacting your missions or doing what you need to do as someone that's a, you know, spy, right? You have to remember who you are. And what you stand for. And that is a very difficult task. I can attest to that. It is so difficult. It's kind of like undercover cops that start hanging out with, you know, gangbangers for like years. And then, you know, suddenly they don't remember who they are. They forget that they're even cops. You know, they're participating in these events to make it go. Right. But they forget who they are. So, What makes a traitor as a spy is the most extreme, but the foundations that you will see are extremely precise and you'll see the qualities in many encounters you have with digital personas, your journalists. You know, before I play that, I wanted to say something. I wanted to address something. So as you all know, I went to Mike Lindell's, uh, the summit, the moment of truth summit. I I went there and I went there to support him more than anything. I I funded myself. He didn't pay for my room like he did for many, many. He paid for their travel, their room. I mean, he fed everyone breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like I I didn't even know that until the the last day of the summit. And there's me. Well, I didn't have much of an appetite anyway because. These darn springs on, on, you know, my upper braces are driving me insane. It's really driving me insane. But what I noticed was 
I, I met some people and, you know, they were like, why do people think you're mean? And I was like, I don't know, maybe it's like I'm Voldemort, right? But that's a, that's purposeful. I want you to understand that. I am more than happy of everyone hating me, of setting fires, of smoking things out and getting under the skin of specific people. I'm okay with that because they're not going to tell me who I am. And then you're going to say, why? Because I'm, I don't like, I mean, I don't like being someone that sets fires, right? But in the times that are coming now, it is very important that we have people that provide information and that's it. We don't need people to provide information of the people they like. We don't need information, you know, from people that pay them. We don't need information because their click says so. Because I will share information from people I can't stand. But it's information. And therefore, this is what we have to do. And if I have to play the role of being the, you know, meanie or ninny, I'm okay with that. Because a lot of these people that are supposedly presenting the news, I know a lot of them are actually salty, right? Damn, I can't even report that. Freaking Tory already did years ago. Yeah, I did. I have an advantage. And the reason I would report it was so that you can see it and report it with your bigger platforms. But you didn't. Because you thought you were more important. You thought you had, I don't know, maybe, yeah, maybe they just think they're important. I kid you not, you guys. There was this one person who approached me, Millie and Gavin in 2019, that wanted us to promote their project or their 501c3, something called Restore America. It's the weirdest thing. It was at the time that Gavin, Millie, and I were like, hey, we really need to get Bill Binney out and, and, and speaking and doing and all these other guys. But for some reason, this woman kept popping up as a gatekeeper. And she was like, just, just share it with your audiences and help us raise money. And I was like, okay, well, what are you doing? Like, show me what you're doing. Yeah, I need money first to show you. And I was like, yeah, see, that's not how it works. And I don't put my main name on things. So I, I I think these amazing people and one of them that is fighting a big battle in Missouri, they stayed at the smoking section because they knew I'd be there at some point, right? Everybody knew that, hey, if Tori's there, she's going to circle out and be in the smoking section at some point. So it was raining and there were these two magnificent women, Jen and, and, and Lori, that I met from Texas. And I was with Grant. And so we took the little shuttle bus, even though it wasn't raining anymore. I, the hotel was nice enough to just shuttle, shuttle us over um, because it was really humid because it wanted to rain all day. And um, the minute the, the bus thing opened, they were like, oh, my gosh, Tori, Tori. Guess who was there? That person, that person that opines about me, but has never met me, that person that tried to convince me to, uh, you know, uh, give them money so they can do things, you know, that person 
right? That tried, I, I'm not allowed to say it because it's not my, my thing, but they tried to do something that was insane. And that person had a lot to say and a lot about me too. And that person had attached themselves to Mike Lindell, which was dangerous for me. Uh, you know, all I could do is kind of say something. And um, the minute I pop out of this this bus thing, and I'm pretty sure the ladies from Missouri and 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 um, Texas heard this, um, and my lawyer did. Well, he's not my lawyer representing me in many things. He's the lawyer for my Supreme Court case. But anyway, um, she said, aren't you honored to be in my presence? I was like, I didn't even know who this chick is. Right. <laughs> I was just like, excuse me? Do you know who I am? And I was like, ah, uh, no. She goes, oh, I didn't know what you look like and stuff. Is it, it, oh, are you Tori? And she was like, hi. And I was just like, I am so-and-so. And I was like, yo, I got to bounce. I like, the person leaned in, I gave a hug and I looked at the ladies I was with and I was like, yo, I'm bouncing. This was the craziest thing I had ever seen. Obviously my presence made them leave. They didn't show up again to the whole event after that. But it was, it was really, really bizarre, uh, you know, being there and the feeling that I got. I got a lot of hate. Um, I felt those vibes, um, a lot of scrutiny. But then, you know, because people had never confronted me, had never met me, had never seen me. And then suddenly they changed their tune. And it's like, I, I don't think anybody gets it. And I want to be clear and transparent. The only people that get angry with me calling out influence operations, with me calling out discrepancies, with me calling out sugarcoating things, are the people that have something to hide. See, I don't cower from questions ever, right? Ever. I do not cower from questions. People that do cower from questions have a problem. You know, I had someone confront me to my face with uh, their own person next to them. I was sitting on some section and the person came up really aggressively. Hey, do you call me a fed? I want to find out the source of that. I was like, oh yeah, because you are. I'm not a fed. Um, yeah, you are. I'm totally not a fed. Um, yeah, you are. Like you're telling me this and you want me to what change what I know to be factually and true. Like, did they think because they're going to come into my face and bark? I was really nice. I was like, I'm sorry, but you are, you know, I know this, I know that. So end of story. Well, you know, I could see you and I was like, please go ahead because you're a fed. And so it was, it was quite interesting to see that I think they thought that the person that they hear when I get irate, because behind, you know, the microphone, I can express myself because that's what I'm doing. People can turn me off, right? Uh, when I'm talking to one person, I can be mindful to not offend. When I'm talking to 10 people, I can also be mindful, right? When I'm talking to a hundred, a thousand, I got to be kind of mindful. But when I'm on my microphone and you could turn me off, I'm going to tell it to you like it is. And I get frustrated. But the thing is, is the people that have something to hide are the ones that are running away and block. Because, even though no one's chasing after them to hurt them, 
They're the ones that run away, they block, they say things and repeat talking points like, you know, like it's going to make it even more true, right? And they run away from conversation. I'm not going to have this conversation. And it's like, oh, but you can sit there and run your mouth. But when you're confronted with it, you run away. Now, I have to say I did meet some people. And they, one person actually made me cry. Because um, he said, I don't know what you're hearing. But every, he, he, he was genuine with his appreciation, which is something that I didn't expect because I have been so sequestered by these influencers because they're running a damn operation. And now you're seeing the operation. You are seeing it because I have been setting these fires. You are seeing it because I have been, you know, oh, she's so mean. She's just hateful. And it's like, you're not hateful. You're posting like the attorney general, by the way, committed suicide, executed. You call it whatever you want. He put like a bunch of names on the front cover. Can I ask you guys a question? Do any of those names really look like aliases? Do I have like a name like Sally? My name has been misspelled so many times. It's ridiculous. It's the same name, same last name with a different spelling. She's like, look at all her aliases. It's the same fucking name. It's the same name. That was done, you know, to make it, oh, look how amazing and crazy it is. It's like, have you guys seen the cover sheet that they circulate saying that she has many aliases? It's the same name that is not an easy name, and it's being misspelled constantly. Uh, my married name, my, my maiden name, and my first name, and sometimes my middle name. Like, how many people have things they've signed up for or signed using their middle name or not. I mean, this is like the most insane thing I've seen. And it's like, my name's not Sally. It's Terpsahori. Okay. It's not a common name. It's not even spelled the way autocorrect wants it to be. I mean, it took me years to fix something that happened and changed it while I was overseas. And then I see it and I'm like, okay, This is coming from people that claim they're journalists. How retarded do they look when they post that and they say, oh, and I shouldn't use the word retarded. Even though the word comes, retarded means hindered, right? We have stigmatized that word and we can't use it anymore because it's not politically correct, right? And it's not supposed to be like that, right? It, It means that... It is slower. Like, you know, oh, I'm a little bit, I used to use that all the time. I'm a little bit retarded on my schedule, meaning I'm behind on my schedule. So I shouldn't use that because I know it hurts a lot of people. So I have to be more mindful of it. I have to kind of reel in my vocabulary sometimes. So let's just put it this way. Brian Cates is an idiot. How's that? Because he posted it and he supposedly praises himself that he's smart and he's an intellectual and he reads things. And then he puts this paper that has my exact name. Like, would you think it was an alias or does it look more like, I don't know, misspellings or not fitting in the space? Because I've had my name cut off so many times on things because it doesn't fit. And it's like, okay. It's not like I was calling myself this, this, this. My actual aliases that I actually had while I was working, none of them are on that document. Now that alias, you know, those aliases are male and female names. 
that are nothing like my name. So it doesn't make sense how these people are able. This is what I need to be pointing out. Now, I have to use the example of me, but I also use other examples when they put out reports or statements. They look dumb. You know, they look very dumb. That's it. And and this is why I do it. Um, the intention behind it is not to be mean to them. It's to say, look, get your crap together or I'm just going to keep doing this until you don't exist anymore on any platform, uh, having any voice because you're causing harm to the people and you're adding to the fog of war. That's the point, right? That is the point. So it's, it's, it's so incredible to watch, you know, how people don't see the intention. You think, you know, I just want to pick fights. I mean, first of all, I still can't fathom the fact that there's, you know, verified accounts that are anonymous or using things like the authority, like authority of what, or, you know, memeing things like, how is that? Are they trademark? No, they're not. Cause I actually filed trademarks to take their names. So they can't post. That's how I troll. Okay. I'll put my money where my mouth is and freaking use that. I will troll them like that. I will own their names. I actually did that to someone in North Dakota. There was this guy, Rob Pork. He's like a blogger or wants to be important. And his name, trademark name registration lap. So I bought it. So I own his website name, actually. The Say Anything blog. I actually own it. I'm, I have it. So I literally own him like that. So for me, that's the ultimate troll, right? That's how I really troll. That's how I really show my pettiness. I'm just saying. But when you see me coming at people, it's not because I don't like them. It's because I'm trying to help correct. And what is it called? Tough love and a little smack into correction. Like, can you stop doing this? Stop being a mouthpiece. Stop doing this. And I know that it's because they want money. I get it. You need money to pay your rent, to pay your bills, to to eat. I get it. I am 100% there with you. But when you are making money on the people's backs while you are feeding them misinformation, false information, disinformation, and amplifying information that should not be amplified or stymieing news, I'm going to call you out. So in a sense, I'm okay with that because in about six months, we're going to have to have actual voices that will voice information. Not, oh, look at me. <laughs> That's my friend. And so he's, he's telling me what to write. So he's like, hey, you need to write this story. Another uh, misconception is that people um, think I'm petty. I'm actually quite logical and fair. People can, a lot of people have done me dirty, but I will not do them dirty back. Well, I want to, but I don't. Even in the conference where I was listening, I literally walked away so that I don't say something or start cussing out loud or because I wanted to be petty, but I couldn't be petty. Do you know why? Because there were so many people there with their eyes on the prize to save their country. Even though I wanted to be petty, even though I want to be like, eh, 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 I, I, I understood that that was my ego talking. And that's one of the biggest problems people have is their ego. And, and we need to keep it in check. 
So let's get into this so you can understand how traders tick because we're going to need this further down in our next conversation in the next few minutes. People are the intrepid ones. You came today, and I appreciate that. But you came for a topic that I know is very fascinating to many people because it is the eternally perplexing issue of what makes traders tick. What's, what goes on in the mind of a spy? And uh, the problem is big because you know about what happened with Snowden and how many bad things he revealed to the whole world and the consequences of it. That's not even measured yet. Not only to how we do things, but really putting lives in jeopardy. That's not a light thing to be concerned about. With Bradley Manning, for example, when he uh, disclosed all the State Department secrets, do you know how they came to understand what goes on in various difficult countries? Brave people would disclose their analyses of what's going on inside their country, say in Africa or the Far East, to our ambassador, with the notion that it would stay confidential because if it came out to the powers that be, they would be killed, literally killed. And then so you think, oh, no, let's put it out there, but you're playing with people's lives. So it's a very serious problem. And as uh, Peter was saying, there are the typical things that are done to try to reduce the problem. The initial screening at the time of hire. You don't want to hire bad people, and they don't do that. They're kind of sophisticated. Then they do reinvestigations periodically to make sure people are still okay. And then they do high-tech detection strategies, you know, snoopy things that are put on the computer. And we live in a Beltway Bandit town, so you can figure that there are many companies that are devising these new, brilliant, special devices or software that's going to completely shut this one down this time for sure. Thank you. Is that going to work? Has it ever worked? If you have somebody who is really motivated, they have all day to think about how to defeat your system, are they going to succeed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then every intelligence agency has a counterintelligence group as well as a security group. And yet, is it working? Is it working well? No, it is not. It's not working that well. There's a dirty little secret that I learned from my immersion in the world of intelligence. The real way that nearly all spies are caught is that somebody from the other side, let's say in the KGB, wants to come over to our side. No surprise. But they have to bring something with them, a gift, that establishes their bona fides, that they're going to be valuable. And what do they bring that's valuable? Names. The names of people that work on our team that have gone over to their side. So they come in and they have a name like Earl Pitts 
Robert Hansen. That's the gift that they bring us, and that's how we break the case. That's really how the cases are broken. I call that a dirty little secret. So what is missing here? It's the better understanding of the mind of the spy. And I would like to um, describe, uh, Peter reviewed it briefly, but how did I get here? I had my training in psychiatry after medical school, of course. I joined the Air Force, and uh, Peter said for a little over two years. Actually, it was two years, one month, three days, 12 hours, and seven minutes. <laughs> that was in the time of Vietnam. And my first assignment was the Strategic Air Command nuclear weapons up in Plattsburgh, New York, a whole year there. And then I managed to get myself down here to Andrews Air Force Base, Malcolm Grove Hospital, and I was the chief of the outpatient mental health clinic there. I got to see all kinds of things, stuff that I'd never encountered before, including some people from NSA. So that was the first little glimmering of the intelligence community, which was very fascinating to me. So when it was time for me to separate from the Air Force, I thought, gee, wouldn't it be cool to become a consultant to the CIA? Wow. So I sent away for the application to do that. And it came back to me, it was about that thick. It wanted to know every breath that I took since I was born, every place that I lived, and I lived in many places. I just couldn't deal with it. Some of it was personal. In the last uh, year before I left, my mom had passed away from cancer. I was starting a new private practice in Alexandria. It was, you saw that thing and you said, oh, I don't know, maybe someday. But this is a weird town. Things happen by accident. And I got down the rabbit hole by accident. That's how I think of it. As you know, I started off as a solo practitioner of psychiatry in Alexandria. I started up my group practice, Roundhouse Square Counseling Center. And I, I bought an office building, which was a good and a bad thing, because once you buy a building, you got to pay the mortgage on it, right? So I had to hire people and get stuff going in there and get all kinds of services up and running. And I had to hire people. And I did all that because I was really cornered. I didn't know how to be a businessman in particular at that point. And finally, I topped out my staff. Then I get another phone call. It's this social worker who's newly minted. And she does one thing that I cannot ignore. She drops a name on me. It was one of my best friends in my psychiatry residency in New York City. He was like a brother to me that I never had. And she's related to him by marriage. I'm going to turn her away? I can't do that to my brother? So I somewhat reluctantly, but still, I bring her in. We have uh, an interview. And she's a dream. She's attractive, intelligent, charming, smart, experienced. Name a thing that's good, and that's Judy. And I say to myself, I just can't send her away. All right, all right, let's make room for her at the table. So she joins my, my staff as well. Eight, nine months later, I get a letter from the CIA. Congratulations, you're now clear to see 
referrals from the CIA. What? I can't figure it. But little by little, I put it together. Guess what? Judy's mom was also a psychiatric social worker in the CIA. And she was the person who was standing up the first really strong employee assistance program there. And obviously she heard about me from her daughter and she must have pulled various strings or whatever got me uh, investigated. Did I know that was happening? No. I just got the letter. There we are. So uh, what to call that, I don't know. Be that as it may, I then started to see many referrals from the agency, from all the directorates. I got an immersion in the culture and the types of people and the different tribes, that's what I call them, within the CIA. There were the case officers and then there were the analysts and then the uh, science and technology guys. They're all different. They really are quite different. But that was 10 years worth of all kinds of experiences. But I must tell you, I did not hear anything classified. That was the rule. I was there as a shrink, you know, not as uh, to deal with classified material. And they didn't tell me anything, and I never asked anything. It was my own version of don't ask, don't tell. But you absorb what life is like for these people and how they're built and so on and so on. And that was... 10 years worth. Now, also, the next thing that happened is that I had a number of people moonlighting for me, working at night, you know, doing just a few hours to keep their hand in what it's like to do therapy. One of them was from the State Department, a psychiatrist that would come in the evening and see a few patients. And we got to know each other after a while. And... Um, he couldn't help but notice that we had a fair number of CIA patients at our practice. Finally, one day he says, well, David, you know what? I actually don't work for the State Department. I work for the CIA. Oh. Well, that was very interesting. We could talk more freely with each other. Hold on a second. You mean he just also admitted something that I've been telling you. People that are part of the CIA, right, don't get a desk in a cubicle at the CIA. Okay? I want to make this clear to you. This is why it's a little bit out of control. They go and get jobs elsewhere. They could work at Toys R Us. They could work at a law firm. They could be working at the FBI or they could be working at the State Department, right? I've already told you deep State Department. All of them are CIA. All of them. Every single one of them are deputized. So I, I, I want to make clear that all of them are, uh, you know, even our foreign service agents, CIA. But they don't tell the agency they're working for their CIA because that's classified. I hope you understand that. Some of them are, you know, flower girls, right? That they just change flowers. Janitors, paper shredders, receptionists, uh, you know, 
Maybe they're the ones in the coffee shop at Langley. You know, well, that's Langley. So, yeah, duh. Uh, let's uh, let's do that. Okay. Your local police department, uh, like in big cities of crime, like Chicago, New York, Cleveland, L.A., uh-huh, even their receptionists are CIA hostess at, you know, restaurants that have celebrities and big names going there, like Harry's Bar, CIA. You know, things like that. And no one would know. You would never know. Because that's the way it is. So he just told you his best friend's wife. She started working for him. Suddenly CIA is like, yep, you're cleared. And it's like, really? And the thing is, there's, see, this psychiatrist talks about one aspect. And I think he misses the mark on this. Because the private intelligence agencies have gotten a better hold. Well, he goes by documented this, 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 and says that we can only catch spies from other countries or defectors from our nation by other people defecting. I mean, that's the most effective way, right? That you catch them in the act, transmitting information, you know, that's classified to foreign assets, understood. But the actual way you see it is by paying attention to detail. This is when you know someone is being deceptive. Right. It's not it's not, um, you know, things that, you know, they're going to give you misinformation. Right. Especially when you're working with uh, spies or uh, State Department or CIA or NSA or whatever people that, uh, you know, work within the IC, they're going to lie to you. You know it. And so what they look for is, well, how do we catch them in the act? Because they'll lie about anything. They'll lie about how what they ate for dinner for no reason, because they're just trained to lie. It's really hard. And this is something that I struggled with. The minute I was like, oh, I don't have to lie anymore. I just can't keep my mouth shut, you know, and, and that makes me socially awkward. But again, it's intention. And how do you find intention? And that's something that we're going to discuss today so that you can understand what is going on from the raid to this, to that, you know, because all these pundits you see, like, why is Tucker whispering in my president's ear? We all know who his dad is. Like, hello. It's kind of like Mika Brzezinski. <laughs> We've got one. Of the, we got a spook on Morning Joe. <laughs> uh, remember when Jill Biden got COVID, how she folded her arms all upset? Well, turns out, and she just folded her arms because she guarded herself. That was a physical cue of guarding herself because she was angry. So she uh, gave that to herself. Again, it's intention, but we'll talk about the intention. But this is pretty interesting. Here's where it gets interesting. I just wanted to. Kind of point that out. Then, no one is who they say they are. About that stuff. And then the next thing that happens, some number of months later, he's having a squash game with a friend of his who's an attorney. And the attorney says to him, you know what? We have this really interesting case that came into our firm. We need some help. It's an FBI special agent who turns out to be a KGB spy. We need your help. And Larry says, whoa, very interesting case. But I can't do it. I work for the feds, conflict of interest. I think I know somebody who might be able to help you. That was me. Whoa. So I hear about this thing, and I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, what do I do here? I had mixed feelings, to be honest. I, you know, you see people from an agency, you sort of feel like you're partly on their team 
And the idea of seeing somebody that worked against the team, not so sure. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, what I know enough about the spy world to know that nobody really knows what makes them tick. Wouldn't it be a unique, impossible to ignore opportunity to have a chance to get access to such a person? I just couldn't turn it down. So, uh, and that gets right to the issue of access because spies are bottled up as soon as they are caught. The only ones that they permit near them are government psychologists and psychiatrists. They don't dare expose that spy to other people that are not cleared. They like to keep it in-house. But most of those people, they're excellent people, but they're not long-term therapy types. You know, they're the ones who do the initial evaluations, they make referrals, they refer to me, they do uh, administrative things, adjudicative things. They're built a little differently, and that's not their job, really, to get to know spies on a deep level. Well, who else has access to these spies? There's only one other group of people, and that's the defense team. Of course, the defense attorney in our system has to be able to mount a defense and can call on some experts to help out. I was being put into the role of an expert. Therefore, it gave me the access that is denied to all other people. So you could make a case that some of the reason that the knowledge of the psychology of spies is so limited out there is because nobody's allowed to get near them, except a few. And I became one of those few. My first uh, meetings with Earl Pitts, who was the first spy, was a very interesting exchange. He wasn't entirely sure what I was doing there and what our purpose was. I wasn't so sure what I was supposed to do either. I want you to pay attention to the quote that Earl Pitts has there. Espionage is a crime that not only destroys your future, it destroys your past. Think about that for a sec. Or keep that in mind while you listen to him speak. I wasn't ever into something called forensic psychiatry. But I must tell you, in the lead up to this, what really happened is I sat there in the attorney's office, Nina Ginsburg, where both of us were kind of feeling each other out, not sure what to do about all this. And she said some things about Earl Pitts that got me worried as a psychiatrist. He was depressed. Well, wouldn't you be? I mean, you're locked in jail. It's pretty horrible. But it sounded even more serious than just that. And to put it plainly, there was a, I detected a risk of suicide. And that would be bad for everybody. So I'm already thinking, I'm already thinking, you know, what, what do I do with my cases in my own office if that's an issue, suicidality? And one of the main things is to give a sense of future, of hope, that there's some way to live through whatever the disaster is. You got to give somebody a, a thing to hang on to. So I, I already was running with this idea. I was thinking, 
what could I say to Earl Pitts? Well, one thing I thought, I, I didn't even know him yet, is maybe he could see that he could make some sort of uh, an atonement, a compensation to our country by opening himself up to me to let me get an understanding of how his mind worked so that it would help the intelligence community learn how to manage this better. He would be doing a service to the country despite all the bad things that he did, and maybe that would give him something to live for. And I presented that to him, I think, by the second meeting that I had with him. And he just jumped to it right away. He did. And that quote up there that you see, I'll be your guinea pig, is exactly what he said to me. Quite remarkable. But there's somebody in this audience that when I would talk about this case, named Dave Major, <laughs> who would give me a hard time because he would basically, I'll use my medical terminology, I was operating with an N of one. And N refers to number. And you know, if you do any medical studies, you want a big N. So you have some robust conclusions that you can draw from something. You're not, otherwise, it's just anecdotal evidence. And I had an N of one. So Dave Major would give me a hard time on that. Fact of the matter is, and I'll be not humble about it, there's nobody in the world that has an N higher than zero. Except for me, I had an N of one. But as luck would have it, and I don't have time to go into it, but it was luck again, you know, that rabbit hole stuff. I deepened the knowledge because I then had two other spies come into my life. The first one was Robert Hansen, who was really quite the notorious one. Everybody knew about him. So that put me on the map a bit. And then the next one was Brian Regan, who was Air Force NRO, uh, National Reconnaissance Office. So he was, uh, that's an N of three. And I'll still say that my N of three beats everybody's N. I had to learn how to grow the relationship with these men in jail. Now picture that you're in this weird room. It's called the attorney-client room. Well, what does that mean? It's like this weird triangular room, about 17 feet tall, with windows at the top. In theory, they're not supposed to listen to confidential stuff. Do you believe that? I don't. Are they watching you? Probably. And you're meeting in this strange location. Now, one of the things, one of the strengths that I brought to this encounter is that a spy is almost in... Um, all by himself, all day. The only people he runs into are the people bringing the food. He's not allowed generally to associate with the other prisoners. And the only people that he meets are the damage assessment team. That's the people from the intelligence community and the bureau, the FBI. They want to shake out of this guy every bit of information they can get as to what he gave away and what he knows and blah and blah. Are they warm and friendly types? Do they want to leap across the table and strangle him to death? Is there a certain adversarial tone? Yeah. And think of the shame for the spy. 
he's got his old friends sitting on the other side of a table looking at him with this expression. They are feeling pissed and angry, hurt, worst of all, foolish and stupid. Because all that stuff was going on right under their noses on their watch. This is not a nice, warm, fuzzy atmosphere. So that's one set of people he's got to deal with. The other one are his own attorneys. Attorneys have a big job to do. They have all this stuff and they got to feed information to their client and control the client. They have a lot of yak-yak that they do. They don't do a, a whole lot of listening. They do a whole lot of talking. There I come in, I sit down, say hi, and I shut up. Because that's what I do in my office. I've learned how to do that. You can't tell from this talk that I can do that, but I can do that. <laughs> For a long time. And that allows somebody who's just dealing with all this stuff inside that's churning to finally have a, a chance to let it out and try to make sense of it with somebody who's really paying attention, which is what I was doing. So what would you call that? Was I a forensic psychiatrist? Some people would say that, but I don't think of myself that way. Was it a, a classic doctor-patient relationship? No, it wasn't. I mean, I am a doctor, but a therapist? No, I don't think. Even though it was therapeutic, I do think it was therapeutic for these people. A confidant? Ah, I don't know what it is. It's just a unique role. And I set it up to be sort of consistent. Why? Because that would provide a sense of security, reliability, predictability, so that it would emulate in a certain way what I do in my office when I see patients, just keeping a steady state going like that. But get what the thing that was remarkable is that I had an enormous access, even more than what I have with most patients in my office. I could meet with them for up to two. And the man is thinking that he is just the same. And it, it really drives us. There's things that we just really need to deal with if something is making trouble happen in that department. Women, do you know that guys have male pride and ego? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've lived with it all your life. So this brings us to what I think of as the core psychology of the insider spy, an intolerable sense of personal failure as privately defined by that person. What do I mean by as privately defined? It doesn't matter if you look at their life and you say, yeah, that was bad and that was pretty bad too and oh, bummer that that happened to you, but you know, it isn't that bad. No, that doesn't matter at all because we're talking about how the person themselves feels. And we are our own worst critics. And if you're dealing with male pride and ego and the man is thinking that he is just screwed up and has not managed his life, he hasn't been operating in a manly, successful way, he's feeling like a failure inside. He may not show it or reveal it, but that's what he's feeling inside and it eats away at him. Now, that doesn't mean that we 
don't think that women are capable of a certain different kind of angle on this. With men, it often boils down to being a good provider and not never losing the respect of your wife. Because, you know, you can put on a show to the whole world, but your wife really knows. And if she loses respect for you, that really cuts deep. That's just the way it is. The way I describe that is with my wife when she was alive, I come up with these cockamamie ideas sometimes and I would look at her and she'd only have to lift one eyebrow three millimeters and it would be like an arrow through my heart. That, that plan of mine was toast. Now women, they have a slightly different take on all this. For guys, the top two things are career and love relationships. For guys, let's face it, they often will put in the number one spot career. And number two, the love relationship. For women, it's the other way around. I'm making a generalization. But if a woman feels that there's nobody in life that she can count on as loving her, that also makes her feel like a failure in a somewhat different sense. But still, I think that's what happens with a fair number of women who were wound up in the spying game also. So if you have these bad things occur, then what happens to a guy? I don't know if you saw the movie, but here's a guy where all these bad things happen. And just look at this fellow's expression. And then look at what happens next. And I put in that emblem of the postal service for a reason. Because we all know that expression, don't we? Somebody going postal. And you read about them, and you, you've read the, these stories. What, what has happened? Well, something happened with their wife. Uh, there was something bad at work. This, that, and the other. And one day they come in with uh, firepower. So you can conclude that spies are basically unhappy people. And at least from what I can tell, they're not recruited in the way that you see in the movies. They actually volunteer. They, they are self-recruiting. They actually have to work hard to get recruited. You'd be surprised. Several of the ones that I know, they had to keep pounding on the door of bad embassies to finally even get any notice. And there's a reason for that, because those intelligence agencies don't want to get penetrated themselves, and they don't want to take in what they call a dangle, a false recruitment. So it's not so easy to get picked up as a spy. they got to work at it. Anytime you talk to people in the intelligence community, I, and I tell them that I'm working on the psychology of the spy. They right away, they brighten up and they say, oh, you're working on a profile. A profile, what's that? A list, you know, all the descriptions that are a perfect way so that right away you can identify Waldo, okay? No, I'm not doing that. I consider profiles a blind alley, actually. What a shocker. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that they're born and they're composed in a certain way and they just have their chance to do it and they do it. No. I think it happens over time. It's a process that unfolds over time. 
A profile is like a snapshot. Oh, you have to, okay, there's your ID. You just look for them. No, it's like a movie, a movie, a movie that unfolds over time. If you got just one little clip out of a movie, you wouldn't be able to tell what's going on. You need the whole movie to see how the things flow. And to get fancy about it, I could call this an epigenetic theory. That's sort of a new term that's out there in evolutionary biology. And what does that say? Sure, the genome is very important, what you have inside your chromosomes. But that's not the whole story, because there's a whole lot of possibilities, potentials in there. They're, they're written in there. It's a library to draw from. But it, what does come out depends, at least in part, on what the context of the life of the organism is, where they are, what they're doing, what happens to them, as to what is drawn out of people or animals. And sometimes it can be good stuff and sometimes bad stuff. The handout that you got today is my summary of what I came up with. 10 life stages of the insider spy. And I'm going to go walk you through them quickly. The sensitizing stage. That's when stuff happens to everybody. And you cannot say that just going through bad things is the explanation of what happens later on. Because everybody goes through bad things. And the way I would put it is that if all the people in the uh, law enforcement, intelligence community, um, military, if all of the ones who had a bad thing happen in their childhood were thrown out, 85% of the place would be empty. That doesn't say anything. In fact, many times it strengthens you to go through bad things. It thickens your skin and you learn how to cope. So it's not determinative. The next stage is the stress spiral stage, and that's what I was referring to before when things pile up. Picture a person who just learns from his doctor that he has a tumor on his liver. Last week, he learned that his wife was having an affair. The week before, he found out that his son is into cocaine, and three weeks before that, his daughter is pregnant without being married. Today, he gets a letter in the mail from the IRS he's being audited. You see what I'm saying? It piles on, and I call that a psychological perfect storm. And I think that's what happens in the six months or so that leads up to somebody making a bad decision, because it makes them feel like they're drowning. The next stage, crisis, climax, and resolution, is that time when they come up with this big idea. Oh, it's brilliant. They suddenly have an epiphany, aha. Now I know what I need to do. Well, it's all screwed up, their idea, but they're inside of this bubble. It's a bubble that's impervious to outside logic. And they're thrilled with it. It's exciting. It's a, it restores their sense of competence and direction. Um, depends on context, what they figure out to do. If it's the post office, they go postal. If it's in the intelligence community, oh, the perfect thing, they have access, they can become a spy. Now, after...
So I wanted to show you this because you may be able to identify a lot of uh, how these people are within our ranks. You know, it they, I don't want to say it's like they, they, the desensitization phase is something organic usually. In my case, I've kind of been clear, you know, I, I did not have a, um, I had a good upbringing, but I was desensitized through my schooling, um, which I found, uh, you know, in retrospect, looking at it, it must have been, I sometimes wonder, let's just put it this way, how I was able to overcome my schooling as a young child. It's a form of seeing it. So like, for example, if you were a child or a teenager that went through brutal abuse and that could just be being tormented for having acne, something so true, but for you, it's a lot. Right now with social media, they don't have to train you and abuse you in the ways that they know will disarm you. It's like for me, I was smart. I was intelligent. I was reading a lot. I wasn't extremely socially awkward. I just thought that everyone around me was stupid my age. I would sometimes enjoy just being a kid, but I always felt like, you know, they're just like, their minds are like this and minds is like this. I was a very weird um, kid. Uh, but uh, the one thing, uh, this is this is why I wanted to become a nun. Because I didn't like people because I saw just how, you know, pedestrian their thoughts can be and how selfish they can be. And it, breaking someone or desensitizing them so you can um, have that slate you need. Um it comes in various shapes of form. Some is physical abuse. Some is mental abuse. Others is just bringing your guard down by giving you what you lack. And so now I want, you know, this lecture is out there. It's on the International Spy Museum. Uh, you know, this guy has done some really good work, though I have to disagree, even though I'm not a psychiatrist. But I do. I have seen foreign assets the way they operate our own assets how they operate and 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 the thing that they miss a lot is the intention because from what i've observed most of these people their intention is internal notoriety this this big dick energy as they say for the males for the females it's the female that wants to dominate because she went through certain, you know, abuses or was ridiculed or maybe she was a late bloomer. But their intention is not for good. And then the question is, how do you find intent? And you find it in the little things. Like, for example, let me just bring up a really pedestrian example, right? So, you know, and this is pertinent and in, 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 in now, so you'll understand on, on a more basic level how you spot these things out. So like, you know, when, uh, 
the GOP was having nominees for different positions here for secretary of state. For example, it was the incumbent of course. Right. And then there was this guy named John Adams. For me, aside from the fact of where funding came, I looked back to see his statements and actions and one thing came up and that's where I knew he was no good. Years ago, a Canadian company wanted to tap natural gas from the state. Uh, they needed they needed the state of Ohio to create a pipeline to bring natural gas up to Canada. And so what he proposed and other Republicans proposed was to use eminent domain and take farmers' land away from them to build this pipeline, right? And eminent domain, which I believe is completely unconstitutional, it should be consensual always, right? Um, but sometimes, and obviously they never compensate people if it is for the need of the state. You know, you have to see the person, you know, agree that, yes, it's in the need of my community or my state to do so because things do arise like, hey, we need to put a highway and this would make more sense. Do you mind? Or we need a pipeline so we can pipe up gas for everyone in Ohio. You know, we'll compensate you because you're giving away your land to us. And uh, we apologize for taking this land, right? But here's what he did. He tried to use eminent domain to take it away from local farmers in Ohio, knowing that it wasn't benefiting anyone in the state of Ohio. It was just benefiting a foreign nation. That, for me... Not only is it a traitor to their state and to the people that are they're, that they're supposed to be serving, but that means that that person cannot be trusted in any position to serve the nation, the intelligence community, or anything. It's the bottom line. You were trying to invoke a law to steal property away to get your energy companies happy. LaRose was part of that stuff too. And and to pipe that up for the Canadians. So this is why it would be a no-go. This is how you can spot a trader. From the simple things that they do. A trader is a is 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 a word that we use for many things, you know. Oh, you're such a traitor, you know, you you know, you told my boyfriend my secret, or you told this, right? Or it could be you betray the people that, it, that in, you know, vested trust in you to manipulate the law and use it because it's self-preservation. These are the people that I would exclude from the intelligence community altogether in any law and justice. They're simple things that you look at. For me, Frank LaRose, the only thing that set my alarm bells off more than anything not him globe trotting or anything, right? Not his pretentious, his bad attitude, talking down to cops, you know, when he should be, you know, respectful. I mean, unless they're disrespectful, I mean, it's fair game, right? It was the fact that when he went into legislation, what he did was he used that position to get his father's house, LaRose company, all set up with this private nonprofit called Jobs Ohio. He helped push that in legislation. Now that's a traitor. 
right there. Because who benefited from it? Who did this? Why did you do that? How does that benefit the people? It doesn't. Because in fact, it was a World Economic Forum plan. And that is why they're partners. That was the whole idea from the beginning to end. So uh, even though people say most of these, um, you know, because for me, if someone was to ask me, I would say Frank LaRose is a traitor to the whole United States and that he is providing comfort to the enemies of our nation because he is cooperating with organizations like the World Economic Forum, like the United Nations, like the smart city stuff that he's pushing. So for me, if anyone asks me, how would you define your opponent? I would say he's a traitor. And that is it. So when we use the word traitor, we have to be able to qualify that statement. Right. Uh, and it could be something as simple as, yeah, you're a traitor. You know, y- you know, you're not my friend. You like went behind my back, stole my boyfriend or something. Right. That's a traitor, too. Right. It's not not a traitor. Hey, you stole my homework and submitted it and you made, yeah, that's a traitor. It's a traitor. You betray loyally. Your trait is trait or do you stick to your trait or that's how I see it. And this is why most of the pundits that I see, you know, is it knowingly, willingly, unknowingly, (laughs) unwillingly? I'd have to say the majority of them are doing it willingly because they're being compensated. But do they know they're doing it? That's where it comes down to intent. We have to think of intent. Always intent is key. I know for myself, you know, many things that he uh, said hit home that, um, you know, self, whatever. But for me, it has nothing to do with work, right? I know how they pandered and stroked the ego of the little nerd that never fit in. I get it now in retrospect, right? Just looking at it. But for me, as a mother, I feel like a complete failure, a complete failure. Even though my my kids are strong and, uh, you know, they went through adverse situations, I wasn't present. The one job I had to do was be a mom and I didn't because I put my mission, my nation over the cause of being a mom, which is an innate quality that every woman has. And, and this, for me, is a problem. And I guess this is why uh, my postal moment I guess was after I realized in 2017 that they had secret subpoenas sent out on me. I knew that they were watching. So in 2019, when I realized, holy crap, are you telling me the intelligence community? Are you telling me that law enforcement saw this shit happening to me and my kids and said nothing? Huh. That's where I went scorched earth. And it's not, and like you said, that's where people go postal. Like, I'm not going to go and start shooting things up. But what I'm going to do is, okay, I'm going to be here reminding everyone that you let this happen. And if you let it happen to me, imagine just how many other places it's happening. And that's a strong statement. If it happened to me, it's happening to others. They might not be people like me. They may be average Americans, but they're like, hey, you know, that nerd that's being 
beat the shit out of, you know, by his dad every night because he's drunk. He's really smart. But, you know, let's just let it happen until we know and then we'll pluck him out and then follow him and then recruit him because he went through it. Again, you know, for me, I would never, if you would have asked me five years ago, if law enforcement and the intelligence community were capable of observing crimes against people and children and sit back and do nothing. And I'm not talking about the ones that participated. I'm talking about good, honest people, right? People that are not, you know, okay with what Epstein was doing as long as they were getting information, right? I'm talking about good, honest people. One child is one too many. If you would have asked me five years ago, you know, would they sit by and just watch crimes happen to anybody, ten children, and say nothing, right? I would tell you, well, except for those that work in those, you know, sociopathic, crazy-ass realms that are probably just as corrupt and probably participate in these things, I would say no. Well, after 2019, December, I can tell you, I'm not sure. I, I can't fathom anyone who says they're good to allow anything like that happen and qualify that with, oh, there's a bigger picture. There should never be a bigger picture. And this is the foundation you know, of it. It's egregious if you think about it. Now, I want you guys to just take that in and then listen to this interview that James O'Keefe had with Peter Slen. Maybe you'll see it differently if you've watched it already. Here we go. Okay to deceive a subject when you're investigating. Your question is an interesting one because it's a question of relative deception. Because either... Either you deceive your subject that you're investigating to tell the truth to your audience, or you don't deceive your subject and you tell untruths to your audience. In other words, if you just take what your subject is saying at face value, you will be disseminating perhaps falsehoods to millions of people. So there's an ethicist named Lewis Hodges who argues in a thesis paper, you have a moral imperative to deceive your subject if your mission is to tell the truth to your audience. This is also written about in a book called The Journalist and the Murderer, which is a famous book in the 1990s. Janet Malcolm, who's a legendary journalist, wrote that a journalist always deceives their subject. It's a confidence game that you must play if your intention is to do investigative reporting. If your intention is to read off teleprompters and to deliver and to play a stenographer and to tell the public what the two-star general wants you to know, well... I would argue that's a worse deception. And you must choose between these two types of quote-unquote deception. But it's paramount that you tell the truth to your audience. That's what a journalist is supposed to do. There has always been a tension in journalism between what I call in this book access and autonomy. There's always a tension uh, there because some people need to get really close to their sources. And sometimes you need to aggressively and adversarially investigate 
your sources. So you have to strike that balance just perfectly. But these days in journalism, um, it's become too out of balance. In the early 20th century, and I think in the mid 20th century, investigative reporting was, was uh, you had the Chicago Sun-Times doing these investigations where they were posing as bartenders. You had you know, most famously, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. The Upton Sinclair was pilloried by journalists in New York for what he did. You don't really see that anymore, right? You don't, yeah, on cable news, people just sort of sit up there and opine and talk about what they think. And, you know, you know none of these journalists on cable has really break big, aggressive stories. Most of the stories are broken into people like me. <laughs> Washington, for example, the Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize for investigating me, <laughs> not corruption in the government. So th- th- you need to have the spirit of, of investigative reporting and citizens need to do it. You kind of have a renaissance and go back to what was done decades ago. Has there ever been a moment in your career where you said, I, I just can't do this again? I mean, this is this is really hard. Yes. This is really uncomfortable. The first chapter of this, uh, if you don't mind uh, holding it up, first chapter of this book, uh, American Muckraker, which is a journalism textbook, it's about suffering. You might say, "What? how would you write a chapter in a journalism book about such a theme like that? Because I think there's a lot of trauma that has occurred in my life and in the lives of, of the people that work for me. Um, whether you're being a whistleblower and you're, uh, you're violating your non-disclosure agreement, you're, you know, you're fired from your job. Um, I I've, was arrested in 2010 by the FBI eventually exonerated from what they accused me of. I was, we were raided by the FBI in November. These are federal agents taking journalists' work product, rifling through anonymous sources in order to find out if you've committed crimes. These are traumatizing things that shake the foundation of what it means to be a journalist, what it means to be an American. Do you think it's because of some of the topics that you're addressing that you're ignored or edited, ridiculed by the mainstream media? I don't know if it's so much politics as it is power. And there is, you know, as Noam Chomsky wrote about, which I refer to an American muckraker, uh, he wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent, 1987. There is a symbiotic relationship between people in power and the journal and the media due to kind of a reciprocity of interest. For, for example, CNN, one of their main advertisers is Pfizer, Pfizer Pharmaceutical. In the commercial break, you actually hear it, you know, it's become a cliche. Brought to you by Pfizer. Brought to you by Pfizer. So we kind of take that for granted on the commercials, but if you are literally paid by a billion-dollar corporation, can you investigate that corporation? Of course not. We take this for granted growing up in America. We grow up seeing the media operate the way it does, but these are not right-wing arguments. I mean, Noam Chomsky is not a right-winger. Glenn Greenwald is not a right-winger. You begin to realize there's more of us than there are of them in the sense that there's more people that believe in truth and transparency than believe in darkness and corruption. There's a place in the world for people like that. And without people like that, investigative journalists can't do their jobs. It's the bread and butter of what it means to be an American. And the, that right, that right to report what someone tells you is being fundamentally fundamentally is is in jeopardy right now in our case with the fbi they're trying to take that right away from us right here and right now i had the aclu lawyers in my office last month telling me by the way they're defending us the aclu is writing to the judge trying to unseal the warrants that are against me 
And they said, this has never happened before in American history, James O'Keefe. What's happening to you has never happened before to any journalist. Now they're starting to point guns at us and take our reporters' notebooks. That's never happened before. So I do admire people like Ed Snowden. I admire Julian Assange. I admire Dan Ellsberg. I admire Mike Wallace. I don't know what's happened. I don't know why the billion-dollar corporations aren't doing the job. It's left to scrappy, broke, entrepreneurial, enterprising people. But so be it. So defectors, defectors, that is what James O'Keefe is. He's a defector. They thought because of the expose he had conducted was to have him on their side. And so they're coming harder at him, open and in the public eye, because open and in the public eye it almost seemed like he assisted them. Now, he did say he admires Edward Snowden. I do not. I am compassionate for what he is going through post the decision he took. I completely understand why he did what he did. But it is because of him that their operation was successful. They knew exactly who to target. They knew exactly how to remedy it in the eyes of the people with the law. And now, I'm sure, looking back, he understands that. Does that mean that he should be tried for what he did? For me, I would say no, because Edward Snowden is punishing himself right now. Many don't see that. Many do not see that. Or maybe some do. And this is why I consider him a traitor first, and his road to redemption will have to be outside of the United States. And he should not be pardoned, ever. Now, as per Julian Assange, he had done everything above board. He was transparent in what he represented. And he was actually very careful. I believe if I had the skills and setup and, I guess... His ability to have more patience and class. And that's probably because he didn't have to lie for a living. I, I, I don't have tact. You know, uh, I'll share a private moment so you can understand in a more fundamental way how I don't have tact. I'm at a restaurant over the weekend with Grant and we're eating food and it was soft. It was pasta. And dessert, I totally, uh, I, re- I inhaled this limoncello cake. But we had gotten ice cream. I really dislike the taste of the ice cream. 
I could taste the xylitol. I could taste that it, the air had hit it. So it was old. I did not like the way it tasted. So when the waitress came, I said, this limoncello cake is amazing, but your ice cream sucks. And she apologized. And I said, why are you apologizing? You're just serving it, but that's okay. And then Grant was like, I liked it. He said, you shouldn't do that. You do that a lot. You're way too honest. (laughs) He said, after living a life of just lies, I don't have to sugarcoat things. And we shouldn't. I mean, people get offended about everything, but just like the lady, you know, she didn't have, she didn't have to apologize. I was like, why are you apologizing? He likes it. I just don't. You asked me, I am going to tell you. Obviously, I'm not going to tell her before my plate comes out, right? Or like a second plate. At the end of my meal, right? <laughs> I'll be like, no, because I don't want, you know, someone spitting in my food. But it's, it's actual constructive feedback. Kind of like, you know, Gavin gives me constructive feedback all the time. So does Millie. All the time. Everybody can give me constructive. I am open to that. And that helps me be more self-aware to things that I don't know, right? That I don't know. So constructive criticism is key. But something that James O'Keefe said clearly How are these big media corporations going to give you news and investigate things if they're getting paid? Like Brian Cates and Tracy Beans. Like all these people, they're not going to bite any hand that feeds them. These social media influencers, they're not going to bite any hand that feeds them. It's plain and simple. And this is why I say, I'm the luckiest investigative journalist on the planet. So is James, because he has a setup where people donate and fund them, right? Of course. But my, I have the best employer. It's like Fortune 1 million. My employer are the people. And they subscribe to me and they support me because they know what I'm doing is for them. And if they don't think I'm doing a good job, then they don't. I mean, I can't, I don't think anyone uh, has a subscribe star like mine. One month I'll have 10 people. The other one I'll have 300. The other one I'll have 20. The other one I'll have 600, right? It fluctuates because, okay, one, people may not have money. <laughs> That's number one. Right? <laughs> or two, um, you know, they're just not happy with what I'm doing. In the end, your work speaks for itself and it moves along. And that's what's important, that we need to have unbiased, unfettered information. You know, I was I was offered to, um, you know, uh, use a company to sell gold and that I do a readout and I'd, and I'd be okay with that, right? But... Because I myself have an opinion and knowledge, right? I have an opinion and knowledge of what the economy is to look like and how IOUs or um, non-tangible assets would not be beneficial, probably would not do it, and it doesn't make me feel good, even though I would be able to make money on it, right? I don't do a lot of readouts. I, I think I've only done one which was better help, right? Um, maybe. 
was it better help that I did because people needed mental health consulting. And sometimes it just feels good to speak to someone online when you're having a rough time. Remember that perfect storm that psychiatrist talked about? I had that shit in 2019. My kickoff was the end of September and the peak was, you know, December. And in December, like I said, rather than me go postal, because that's not me, I, even though people think that I re- react spontaneously, I don't. I'm actually very calculated in my thinking. I am considerate of other people, regardless of what you may think, when I just come out all bull in a china cabinet, right? And, you know, obviously when I use language, when I cuss a little, because I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm trying to suppress the pettiness and the ego, it's really, really hard. You know, people are, there are not a lot of people that can self-check, right? I am, I I like to praise myself that I can self-check, but it also escapes because I get angry and I get petty, right? (laughs) Um, But uh, I have to say, at the end of the day, information is why we're having this war, And in a war regarding information, truth is key. And if I got to kick a couple of hornet's nests to make it clear, well then, so be it. And if I've got to receive hate for it, it's like, you matter nothing. Because look at the people that I actually go up against. I, I don't go after little, you know, stupid accounts, random ones, anonymous ones that want to opine pretending like they know me because they'll say things online that they wouldn't dare say to my face. Guarantee you that. But it's about the truth. It is so important. So tomorrow I'll be doing a show kind of late because I have my hearing tomorrow. Um, I don't think I can stream that. Um, I'm hoping that I have someone recording that information that's professional. I'm going to, after my call with the lawyers in a few minutes, I will be doing that. So on that note, guys, I have to go. I want to wish you guys a fantastic evening. And tomorrow's show is going to be pretty, pretty full, pretty interesting. Because we're going to talk about camouflage that I didn't get to. Camouflage. Don't let them think ah, that they're getting away. With it.